Well, welcome back to the Camp 8 Podcast. I'm Kyle Gill, here with Eli Sagar. Hey, Eli. Hey, Kyle. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, what have you been working on and thinking about recently? My goodness. Uh, it's hard to know where to start. It's been such a crazy period, but uh, I'll start with some great news. We, um, and I may have mentioned this on our, on our last episode, but we brought on a new member of our team, Caitlin Wilson. Caitlin is going to be the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative's new education program specialist. She comes in with a background uh, doing wildlife research, a lot of work on songbirds and habitat use, including use of commercial uh, timberland by songbirds. So uh, she'll show up in a lot of our upcoming programs. Folks will get to know her a little bit there, and I'm just uh, thrilled to have her on board. She's going to be a great member of our team. Uh, And it's also been such a, this has just been such a wild year, Kyle. Um, You know, I live on the north end of the Twin Cities, uh, although my my job is based in Cloquet. And so I'm only about 15 miles from the site of the murder of George Floyd. And, uh, you know, our family has been talking a lot and processing a lot of what what that all means and, and, and how that has affected our community. And we visited the site, uh, I think about a week ago now, and uh, it was really very moving. You know, it's been, it's been hard to process all this and to make sense of it, but it really has been wonderful to see and in a small way to be a part of the community outpouring that has come up. And, and um, you know, I'd like to think that people are really uh, coming together and hearing a lot of good things. And these are not simple issues. They're certainly not easy to resolve, but it's been um, uh, it's been painful, but also um, nice to see, as I said, the community coming together. So uh, what and, was, I haven't yeah, been able ahead. to get down to the uh, cup food site. What was that like to be there in person? Oh my, it was uh, it was really moving. So we were there. I I I, I think it was about a week after um, after uh, the the event. The whole intersection was blocked off. There was a large part of the street that in, that had names painted on it of other African-American people who have suffered uh, police brutality. And um, it was moving to see that. There was a large stage set up and a number of people speaking. It was very clearly, they were very clear that this was a violence-free zone. There'd be no destruction, no verbal or physical violence or anything like that, that it was a safe space. Uh, there was a memorial with a number of signs and flowers and other items that had been left in George Floyd's memory. And of course, the image that will stick in many of our minds is the mural that's been painted on the side of Cup Foods. Um, that is a, a colorful depiction of, of him. And, and um, it's, a, it's, a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful mural. And, and it's a it's really a very moving space. I think many would say it's a sacred space and it, it was hard not to be uh, a little bit emotional being there. You know, it, it really makes this event that it's one thing to see these things on the news and even when you hear or see heartfelt reactions uh, or the videos and, and other things themselves, being there in person really um, gave it a new dimension. And I was glad that our family was able to do that. Thanks for sharing that experience. Yeah, like I said, I haven't been able to get down there. So it's nice to hear from people that have been there. Because up here in Cloquet, we're a little bit removed. And as somebody who lives out in the country, I can kind of just 
pay attention remotely. My guess is a lot of other foresters are in a similar, similar place to me where it's just like, oh yeah, there's all this stuff going on. And uh, it's nice to hear from people that have been able to see it in person. And of course, with today's digital technology, we have a better view into things that are remote from us than we kind of ever have. And so we get kind of this curated, um, we get this curated perspective on what's going on down in, down in the metro area and, uh, and then have to try and translate to what that means for us in the rural areas. And uh, yeah, it's like you said, it's interesting, interesting times, I guess. So what's going on up there? What's new with you? Um, same, I think similar, similarly, I've been um, thinking a lot about race relations, trying to think about my own cultural biases and how um, even though that, that I grew up in a, in a white privileged society that, that doesn't, and I can recognize that I get embarrassed about what I don't know, but I'm trying to take the mentality that that embarrass, embarrassment pales in comparison to um, systemic white privilege, basically. And, uh, and trying to, I'm trying to be intentional about calling it what it is because um, I know that I have, I have benefited from the systems that are in place, both as a, as a white person and a man. So thinking more broadly about sexist um, systemic issues, um, there's still so many systemic issues that we don't really know about until we're, we're the fish in the water at times, and we don't know we're in the water until we're pulled out and made very, very much aware of, uh, of the culture biases that aren't necessarily intentionally put upon us, but um, I think it's important for us to at least try and try and see um, uh, to, to try and see those um, systemic um, those systemic factors that make us who we are. And those, like I've brought up in earlier episodes, I think those cultural biases play such a huge role in how we view the world. And it's important for us to try and recognize those, not so that we can say it's all good or it's all bad, but to recognize it so that we can um, be mindful of them. And if that is something that seems a little bit more on the negative side, like, um, like white privilege to try and do what we can um, to better interact with ourselves and better interact with other people and be more inclusive of people because of not necessarily in spite of, but because of our difference, uh, because that difference is important to having, uh, we, we understand the importance of diversity, I think in the ecological realm, but sometimes we don't necessarily translate that directly or draw that analogy to, uh, uh, to our human relationships. And I think it's easy to um, stick to red pine monocultures, so to speak, <laughs> in, uh, in our uh, institutions. But uh, it's important to say, hey, if we're going to be resilient as communities moving forward, we maybe need to be intentional about bringing in perspectives that aren't necessarily here currently. So, so that's what's been on my mind, Eli. Uh, what else has been on my mind is this interview I had with Greg Bernoud the other week. The focus of today's episode is five questions uh, plus with a forester, there's a few more than five questions. And I wanted to get us thinking about county forestry. And in our little lead up, uh, you mentioned that county forestry pays, plays this kind of interesting realm within the, the forestry community. Will you uh, share a little bit more of what you meant by, or what your pers- perspective is on the, the role that county forestry plays in Minnesota's uh, forestry community? Yeah, well, this was new to me. I didn't grow up in Minnesota. And when I moved here, I was, I found it really interesting to learn about the role of counties. 
I think the number is 15 counties in northern Minnesota have county land departments. They manage tax forfeited land. So administratively, it's kind of interesting. The state of Minnesota technically owns the land, but the counties administer that land and manage it. That land is managed for in order to provide uh, resources to support the local community, the local school district uh, and other local um, other local needs. And so we're, we're going to hear Greg talking a little bit about the revenue side of that and also the many other aspects of uh, the things that forests provide to the community. And I won't steal his thunder here, but I, I, I was, I'm glad that you had a conversation with someone from a county, Kyle. They, um, they do play an important role. It's a unique role. And I think, uh, I think Greg talks about it uh, eloquently and with some humor. It's a fun <laughs> interview. Yeah, that's why I couldn't I couldn't not be kind of reflecting on and, and laughing at uh, the interview with Greg because he has some uh, some pretty funny comments in there. Yes. <laughs> so per usual, I started the questions off with, who are you and who do you work for as a forester? My name is Greg Bruno. I'm the land commissioner for Carleton County. And are there other groups or councils that you're that you participate on? Oh boy. Yeah. Um, I currently represent the counties on the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. been on there for eight years. My term is up, so we're in the process of finding a replacement for me. Other things, uh, I sit on the uh, Conservation Partners Legacy Grant Program, so we review all the projects that come in for funding through uh, SPURT dollars from Lassard Sands grant monies. And back up to the Noxious Suite Advisory Co Council, Dick Moore from Beltrami County is the lead county commissioner on that, so I'm his uh, alternate. Um, little dibs and dabs here and there. This Sustainable Forestry Education Cooperative, I represent counties for that. What else do I do? Uh, it's about all I could think of. Do you have time to do your Carleton County uh, work, or are you uh, <laughs> always doing stuff outside of that? Sometimes that, that that's the beauty of uh, hands-free in the pickup truck. I can do both while going to a site. And I actually do have somewhat decent cell coverage. So I have done uh, things with um, with other groups remotely on the field. When we were tree planting down by Holyoke, and we had a, count, not a council meeting, but a, a spinoff of that. And so through my iPad, I was able to video conference and while we're supervising the site preparation crew. Okay. Uh, so how did you end up at, at Carleton County? Long, circuitous route. Um, that's a good question. How did I end up here? I guess I was lucky enough to be the best interviewer at the time back uh, when uh, my former plant commissioner, Milo Rasmussen, re retired. Um, I've been in the Cloak area since 1988 when I moved up here after doing a bunch of work out with the Forest Service out west. Went to work at Pine County, got married. My wife worked for the Pollution Control Agency in Duluth. So we've just been in the cloak area since 1988. Been fortunate enough to work forestry around here. So for you, what does it mean to be a forester and what, what inspired you to follow this career path? Probably what inspired me more than anything was back in the day. So um, like most people in the metro area, you spend weekends up north. My mom's side, the family's from up by Ely. My dad's side is over by... Uh, New York mills in that part of the woods. So we would go up north and weekends, spend time in the woods. And I just thought, you know what, this is where I'd rather be. I didn't mind growing up in the cities. It was great, but um, I wanted to be up here. So how can I get a, 
how can I get a life up here? I didn't want to work in a mine, which I could have with my cousins, but I didn't want to do that. So I thought, well, uh, fishing trips up to Basswood Lake. That I want to actually wanted to be a game warden to begin with, and then I uh, realized I couldn't make the cut to be a game warden. Didn't have either mentally, physically, or the desire, because the first people I'd have to arrest would be my family members. <laughs> So we'll leave it at that. And then I thought, nah, that, that doesn't play well. So I thought, well, forestry sounded cool. And you say, let's let's go down that road. So go back to the first part oh, of that question. Yeah. What did, what what does it mean to be a forester? Well, actually, I thought when I um, went to forestry school, I thought what I really want to do is probably, A, get away from people. And where can you do that better than any place but sitting in a fire tower out in Idaho? which I really want to do, but I ended up on a tree marking crew instead. And I thought, huh, this is kind of interesting. You know, um, you know, you learn about uh, the different types of timber and what the end product was. So I uh, got on the tree marking crew, went to St. Mary's. I've, actually, it's based out of Avery, Idaho. Um, but we go to St. Mary's, go to the plywood and the sawmills. And it was just fascinating to watch logs being turned into either plywood or into lumber. It just fascinating. Uh, okay, well, how do we grow better trees to keep that? that process going and so to me being a forester was um you know the greatest good for the you know that Gifford Pinchot quote I'm sorry I'm forgetting the quote but um it was just fun because I it was neat to know that I can do something now that somebody in the future is going to get the benefit and you know like we say a forester's uh joys to plant a tree he'll never see turn into something other than a, a new tree so um it's been kind of my philosophy also Growing up in a family of farmers back in the day, too. Um, my dad was a farmer, moved to the cities. My grandpa was a farmer. It's just fun, too. The, the agriculturalness was uh, in my blood. So I understand planting things to reap them at a later date. I want to do with trees. Uh, you're obviously the land commissioner now, so what it means to be a forester and how you get to do your job has changed, um, I assume, as you've worked your way oh, up. So, so how, does your, how do you feel like that? perception on what it means to be a forester has changed I, i'm i've got a unique job here with carlton county unlike some of my counterparts in that i would say of 15 or so land commissioners out there we still get to get out in the woods even though we handle all the administrative day-to-day -day stuff the politics uh, we still do get to go out in the woods and mark trees inspect sales do forest inventory it's really shifted from that to doing the administrative work I get enough out there now where I at least keep the fire going. A more concise uh, version of that question is what does being a forester look like for you on a daily or seasonal basis? Oh. So for, for me, um, my forestry work is probably more geared towards the winter where I'm helping Mark go out and minister sales, paint lines, look at road projects because of the frozen ground conditions. Summertime, we try to stay in because of the flies, the ticks, and you just can't see that much in the woods. So um, I wish I were out helping Mark right now, Mark up pine stand for the next thinning. But I also pick up the recreational part of it in the summer. So this summer, it's been a really revolving around a lot of ATV issues. And I've been trying to deal with that. So that part of recreation, we had one class in school and I, uh, of course, uh, Mr. Mary and Professor Mary with them didn't know what an ATV was because nobody really did. You know, nobody knew it was going to blow up into this what we have now. Um, but just the other aspects of recreation, uh, setting up some mountain bike trails, hiking trails. Uh, we've got a cross-country ski that we've been trying to rehab. And I, 
<laughs> so I've probably moved more from the real forestry program that I went to back in 1980, 81 to more of a recreation program right now with my job. And it seems to be a good balance so I can do the administrative part and still get out in the woods. And then when Mark really needs to help, I can go out and help him. So you you keep saying Mark, I assume you mean Mark oh, yeah. Westfall, right? Yeah, yeah, Mark who Westfall. Else, who else is a part of your team right now at Carleton County? So I also manage the GIS department with the county. So I've got Jared Hovey as my GIS coordinator and Shauna Roberts as my GIS technician. It's fun in that I do get to take them out in the woods to help us as well. If we've got uh want to do some aerial imagery with drones, we'll bring Jared out. He's a licensed drone pilot as well, so he can fly one of the three-county drones. We'll go out and fly the site. Uh, Shona, with her cutting-edge GIS capability, she can go out and run the iPads, the GIS, uh, the GPSs, create the maps. Um, We've also been working on a, our ATV park down in Moose Lake, and uh, those two have been immense in helping us set it up and then getting that data out to the public via the website, QR code, whatever. So it's fun. Do you So thinking back in, on your career uh, or to the present, uh, what is the favorite prescription or project that you've either developed or implemented and why? Oh, that's a... Uh, favorite project um it could be most memorable too so it, it yeah sometimes the uh, most memorable are the most awful and those end up so they're not necessarily <laughs> our favorite but they're they're memorable so take it however you want hmm. there, there's been a few of them you know most memorable and i was just talking to uh one of our our um mechanics from the shop here who also used to be a logger up out of, or is a logger up out of Isabella. Um, one of my most memorable projects was back when I was a procurement forester with the paper mill here in Cloquet, back when it was known as Potlatch, we, the company had bought about a 30,000 acre tract of land up um, halfway between two harbors in Isabella. And we had to cross the Langley River. And at that time, we were doing the scouting. We found an old railroad grade up there that happened to have the abutment still in place where it crossed the river. It was about a 60-foot span. And it just so happened at that time, they were putting in the new digesters here at Cloquet. And they had to take out the roof of the old building and put in a new one. So they had these 75, 80-foot I-beams. And uh, was able to scab those I-beams, hire one one of our loggers' trucks who had a long trailer, haul them up there. Another logger put them in place with his excavator. Then the third logger and I, we nailed down the decking and we built a 70-foot clear span bridge across the Langley River and probably moved about uh, 50,000 cords of wood across that already three years worth of time. It was just fun to build a bridge. So that was that was fun. But most recently, it's been intensive. I don't know if it's fun, but it's been a lot of work is. Carleton County and Aiken County joined hands under a joint powers agreement, and we're putting together our habitat conservation plan for northern longer bats. Mark Jacobs and myself started this. We hired uh, West Inc. out of, at the time, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and they are putting together the program whereby we can, uh, if and when the northern longer bat or the little brown bat becomes listed as endangered, we'll have a habitat conservation plan in place where we can keep business as usual for forest management without having to jump through a lot of hoops. It's been, that's been a learning experience. The bats are cool. 
it's been a fun project. I imagine you didn't, uh, you mentioned the recreation resource uh, management. You had one class. I imagine you maybe had one class on bridge building and log building, <laughs> but maybe no classes on wildlife in the, in your curriculum at that time in the early eighties. Um, we did have one class at the Cloquet Forestry Center in the fall of 1980. And um, I don't remember the instructor of it. Maybe it was Gordy Gullion. Yeah, it was Gordy because it was all about grouse. That was a lot of fun. So that, that's my extent of wildlife classes. We knew what it was. They were in a different building. And those people were, were strange just because they're wildlifers. <laughs> But I guess I'm kind of getting at that potentially wildlife wasn't really thought of as a big thing for a forester at that point, right? Maybe that has, or maybe it was, and maybe it's, uh, maybe my perception is just incorrect. No, no. You, but you, did you ever, did you ever think you'd be kind of thinking about bat populations as a forester? Never crossed my mind. You know, bats were cool. That would be the one thing you'd, you know, go outside and throw up miniature donut or some marshmallows and watch them pick them off midair. And they were always kind of fun. Or they'd be in your garage or your attic and never thought that they'd have the impact on forestry that they're going to have or have had. Same with other things back in the day, you know, forestry was boards and cords. How much wood can you get on? You know, you got a site. The mantra was uh, clear cut burn plant to old red pine when I got out of school and we did a lot of it. Um, nowadays, it's just about the opposite. You know, let's take a look at it as a whole ecosystem. Let's look at all the plants there. The, I'm guessing Cheryl probably talked about this earlier, but uh, the ecology of the forest is really coming to play now. And I see that with the new foresters coming out of school compared to the, to my class, my generation. So what do you think have been your biggest successes and challenges during your career? <laughs> biggest success so far is staying out of court and keeping my bosses <laughs> out of jail. <laughs> no, um <laughs> Probably biggest success. <laughs> Greg, we're recording this. <laughs> I, I know. Off the record. <laughs> no, that's actually uh, when uh, I interviewed for this job. Uh, the county auditor asked me, "What are you going to? What's your number one job?" You know, I said, "Keep you out of jail, Paul." Obey the law. I mean, that's that's absolute truth. So, so that has been good. Um, it's fun to build the program and uh, hire good people and see and let them have the freedom to implement what they went to school for versus what I went to school for. And uh, like I say, it's been they're more holistically rounded in the, the whole ecology of the forest compared to me and let them go and do the work and then learn from that. So I think that's my big success is let people do their job the way they were trained or educated and sit back and watch and try to learn something from it. I get it from Mark Westfall. I get it from Jared, my JS, and from Shona, my both my JS people. That, that's my greatest success is I've learned probably more than I learned in school. And I tell that to Alan Eck all the time when I go to a forest resources course. Alan, you know, you never taught me how to deal with uh, such and such, you know, going back to school. You know, I want my tuition back. Alan says, Greg, I don't think you had enough credits to graduate. We should probably check that first. <laughs> so, so tell me more about the getting into all those councils and, and all the mm -hmm. seats, like how did, how did you end up go, kind of going that direction with your career? It probably all started when I first became a land commissioner. I was down in Pine County. I was a Pine County land commissioner before I moved up here. And um, at a Minnesota Forest Resources partnership meeting, the 
chair of that was stepping down and just happened to be my mentor, Norm Modi, who was the Cass County Land Commissioner, later became LCCMR member. And for he said, Greg, you know, it's a good organization. Maybe you should look at being the chair of it when the next time a county position comes up. So I thought, okay, why not? Just to get into the politics a little bit. Because uh, whilst there's things you can't do in the woods, it's amazing how much of what you do in the woods is, is governed out of St. Paul. And so you decide, well, do you want to be done to or do you want to be the doing to? You know, so I can go, I can't sit here and just complain about what St. Paul says or whoever says or my county board. Or I can get involved and say, you know what, here's the data. Here's the information. Here's what really happens. You know, I'm a field person first. But I'll make, I'll worry about theory second. So through the partnership, being the chair of that, and also chair of the land commissioners group for four years, the natural progression was to move up to the council. And I, I probably have a reputation on the council as speaking my mind. If I don't like something, I do let them know. And I disagree more often than I do agree. But it's, it's all cordial. You know, if you can't express your opinions in a cordial, civilized manner, nothing really gets done. You know, you got to have a, a yin and a yang in all these organizations. As long as we're respectful about it, I'm sure the current chair of the council, no, we've had our yes and no times, and uh, we both agreed to disagree, but at least we understand each other. Why? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's just that the politics of it kind of gets into you because you decide, you know, here's my experience in the woods. What you're proposing, while on paper sounds good, here's all the hidden stuff that you don't know unless you've been out in the woods actually with a dibble bar in your hand, planting the tree with the paint can, marking the pine, setting up the sale, talking to the loggers, laying out the road, figuring out how much it's going to cost. You know, you can't put the culvert there because it will cost you 10 times as much as just going around over there. You, you got to have a well-rounded experience. Mm-hmm. I think I got that. Can you recall what gave you that insight that, what did you say, most of what you do in the woods is, is dictated by what's coming out of St. Paul? Was there something that helped you to see that or understand that? Um, probably the, the back early in the days of the partnership and the council, uh, and we're going back to 1995 now, when the forest industry, the DNR, did the statewide generic environmental impact statement. And as part of that whole process, statute was uh, designed to create the Forest Resources Council. And their goal was to develop policy. And I'm going to the forest, uh, forest management council to develop a policy. And a lot of it was based on, on books, on, on research. And not saying it's good or bad, it just is. You know, here's what the research says, here's what the research says, here's what the research says. And the research is good for, I'll say, 90% of, maybe 80% of the, the situations that come up. But there's always that 10, 20% where, you know, what you got in the textbook here isn't going to work. Be it an RMZ because of slopes or whatever. You know, I know it's an average, and that's the beauty of the guidelines. They're set up as generally averages, you know, look at overalls. But some people want to bring that right down to specifics. Well, the BMPs say, you know, 160 feet for RMC along a trout stream. That means no work. Well, no. But that's how it's ingrained. That's the message from higher up. Not saying just St. Paul, but it could be any county as well. Here's, here's what it is. Well, no, it's not true. You know, get into it. Let's get the real word out. And um, 
maybe a little bit to the BMPs, and that was a beauty of the partnership versus the council. The council developed the policy. The partnership was the group of practitioners who reviewed the policy and say, yes, we can do this. Yes, maybe we can do it. No, this won't work, and here's why. And then go back and forth. So I, I always like to give and take, look at both sides. Um, having worked with the feds, you know, that's probably the, the, the feds have a lot of good people. Um, but sometimes their policies get in the way of them. They can't do what they want to do because a policy is generated through a research station or out of Washington, D.C. And what works good for Maine doesn't necessarily work good for Minnesota. doesn't work at all for California. But the policy is national. That's what they have to do. And that's where I like to get in and you know, work on regionalities. Like even in Minnesota, what works up in the northeast part of the state it differs from the Northwest part, so it just because of topography, soil types, and culture. So that's what got me interested. So you recognize that uh, with no voice at the table, then you just have to take those policies and try and implement them regardless of whether or not they're realistic. Right. And even working, you know, the, the beauty of this job, again, there's many beauties with it, but uh, right in our backyard is where you work. You know, we have the, the Cloquet Forestry Center here, and it's great that, you know, you come up with a program and we can look at it and say, hey, does this work? You know, in, in, the, in the setting that you have, actually, Cal, I thought at one time I would want your job because you've got it made. You can do anything you want in the woods. And if you screw up, you call it research, right? <laughs> you do too. I mean, the I know, I can do that. I know, but, but you got the I, license I'm too. Just, I'm just trained how to, uh, to market in that way. And it uh, sounds like you probably are as well. Yeah, but you got the license too. If I do, if I do it, uh, it, it, I get a ding on my uh, my forest audit or something. You just write it off as research. But no, going back to it, this is what's great is we can work together on things. Look, hey, what do you think about this? And you might look at a small scale something, and I can throw it up you know, a two three acre project by the scientific method, interpolate that out, and say, okay, will this work on a larger scale program? I'm here to do that, and then we can work together. And I know. I, been done and if it doesn't we look at okay how do we tweak this so we can make it work mm-hmm. that, that's the beauty of it versus just having the university come on and say you know this is what is you know pine thing every third row that's it that's the book well it doesn't always work that way yeah you want to remove 30 percent but every third row is not necessarily the correct way to do it because you can move around i i always get the impression that sometimes county foresters feel the feel the push to have to have economics be the primary driver. But I'm not sure if that's actually the case in Carleton County or if you're able to have the freedom to say, hey, let's try this thing, even if it's not necessarily uh, the greatest economics for the greatest number of the county, but maybe it's the greatest research or greatest long-eared bat uh, investigation. Uh, No, it, you're, you're right. Uh, county's number one goal is to generate revenue for the trust. We have to, that's, uh, that's a constitutional mandate because the lands that we manage were, the lands we managed back in the day before the county's come, any private property, one of the main goals is to generate revenue for the taxing districts. That's, that's why everybody pays property tax to the, to the county. It's mandated under the Minnesota constitution. So lands do have to generate revenue. If the state's going to take them because Greg Bruno did not pay his property tax, that still doesn't alleviate the mandate that that property generates revenue for taxing districts. And by statute, they're the school districts, the township or village, 
and then the county board because they provide the services. So we have a constitutional mandate to generate revenue. That is our goal. But how do you do that in a sound, sustainable way when we're managing timber or other resources? So um, while up here it's the easiest thing to, of course, is to harvest timber. We've got a somewhat still active, uh, viable timber industry in this part of the state. We do sell a lot of wood to make that. But now we start looking at other things. So silviculture, does this make sense? Uh, well, you know, the old day, paint four, paint four lines, cut her all down, send it to the mill. That used to work. Nowadays, we don't do that because you take in the considerations of wildlife benefits, water benefits, recreational benefits. Okay, how do we put all these into a program and still generate revenue where we cover our costs? It gets tricky, but there is no more set playbook of just paint four blue lines and cut everything in between. Mm -hmm. Like um, in hardwood thinning, we used to look at marking each individual tree in our higher grade hardwood stands, you know, trying to take out the worst first and just keep on labor intensive, material intensive with the paint. And so um, some of the counties, and I'm not going to say that Aiken County started first, but they publicized the most. I was going to these group selections, crop circles, what mm -hmm. have you. And it's an efficient, cheap way to get the end result of a multi-aged, multi storied forest, hardwood forest, still get some product out. You know, it's, it's, you take, takes innovative thinking like that. And so we're free to do that. Mm -hmm. My county board said, here's, here's the bottom line, Greg, you know, you make enough cash to cover your costs, what you do, how you get there. We don't care. Uh, you mentioned that the constitutional mandate is that you generate revenue for the taxing districts. Is there a, a time frame on that? So sometimes I think that gets translated into, into, okay, I need to make the most money on this sale. But it sounds like maybe you're taking a broader approach and saying, yeah, I need to generate that revenue, but I also need to balance that with long-term sustainability. Mm -hmm. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, yes, you are. So when we say maintain, uh, I would say to a county is at the beginning of every year, or I should say county line department, we start the year with $0 in our account and on all of our budgets. So at the end of the year, we end up with zero as well. But for Carleton County, for example, we have um, about a $400,000 annual operating cost. That's how much I have to make every year. So St. Louis County is, of course, exponentially higher than that. I, I'm probably one of the lowest, but so we all know what we track over time. How much do we need or what are our costs? How much is the cost for paint? How much is the cost for salaries, pickup trucks, everything? All of that has to be paid out of the revenues generated from these lands. Any extra over and above that goes back to the county general fund, the township's general fund, and the school district. For example, I've, I raise enough money and give back enough to the townships where I pay for a school teacher and a half every year, their full salary. St. Louis County, um, God knows how much they, they generate, Aiken County. I think we figured out one time we probably collectively, the 15 counties, return enough money to the taxing districts where they pay for about 30 school teachers every year in their respective counties, township, road, and bridge. But yeah, we still balance that against, we just don't want to do it all now. Yeah, we could, we could generate a pile of revenue right now if I harvest everything, but that doesn't help us 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road, 50 years down the road. So we, we balance, okay, what we know we have an allowable cut every, that's the maximum we could do. We try to hit that just to get on a, uh, to keep an even cash flow. But things change. You have a wind event, you have a bug event, you have a fire. Now, 
things change. Mm-hmm. So it, it's balancing money versus balancing a long-term outcome to our sustainability. And Plus, that has what uh, has certification contributed to how you balance that, or is that something that it was already um, a part of how Carleton County operated? Certification for Carleton County helped solidify our processes. To be honest, forest certification has not gained us one nickel as far as added value directly, you know, for like getting more wood at our timber auctions, uh, getting our loggers a better price at the mill, opening the gates at the mill for loggers when times are tight. Um, so, and that, you know, some of those, I'll say, premises that we sign on with forest certification never came up. Even the mills don't get any more uh, end product, any more cash at the end product for having certified. It keeps them in the game, though. Uh, with an internet, with a global economy, forest certification keeps our mills in the game, especially when it comes to paper mills. But when we look at our internal processes, forest certification is set. It, it's set up sideboards. You know, instead of just writing out something on the back of a piece of paper in the woods or napkin and tell the loggers what you need to do, now we've got a whole system whereby we check all the things like, okay, which mm-hmm. what type of water system are we working? What are the endangered species here? What are the concerns of the of the people that eat, who were enrollees in eighteen fifty four or Fond du Lac or take your reservation? Or what are their concerns? We never used to do that back in the early days. Now we're doing it. We involve those people. We involve those parties, and we through that we get we keep the social license to continue work. So it's in that essence, it's been very good. Mm-hmm. Well, I have definitely done more than five questions. Uh, <laughs> That's all right, but. Uh, um, do you have any, any follow-up thoughts from any of the questions that, that I asked earlier? Um, any last just, words of wisdom? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the one thing you did brought up, you know, my, I was thinking about this as we were speaking was my greatest achievement here is to have been in the forestry profession for 40 years and seen it change. I mean, there's a lot of people who come out of college, you know, full of vinegar and the other stuff and ready to get out in the woods or do whatever. And for whatever reason, they, they drop out. If you can stick in it, yeah, it doesn't pay a lot. You know, you can make a lot more money doing something else. But my goodness, every day here is a vacation when I'm at work because I get, I'm looking at my office, I'm looking at the trees. I know I'm going to go out. I'm going to go, uh, today I've got to do some work in a skid steer and open up a forest road, mow some stuff around. Who gets to do that on the job? Next, you know, next week I'll be out uh, doing some forest inventory and guess what? I might stumble into a patch of morels. Who knows? You, know, <laughs> you get, you get this kind of, every day is something new. You're not pigeonholed into just doing one thing, you know, like balancing the books and grant. God, I love people who can do that. You know, accountants, you, you need them. But if I had to do that, boy, I just might as well as, uh, eat a chunk of lead. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a great job. It's a great profession. Doesn't pay well, but, uh, <laughs> apparently it pays the, well the, enough. It pays well enough in the bet, but the benefits every day, every day is something new. Great people. Yeah. You get, you get some hourly people, but every day is different. Every day is fun. And some days you get rained on. (laughs) Okay, Greg. Well, this has been uh, a ton of fun getting to learn more about you and, and the County forestry. So thanks so much for being willing to answer five questions with a forester. Oh, my pleasure, Cal. This was a lot of fun. I had a good time. All right. Well, people learn something.
as I said before the interview, that was a really fun interview and time to learn more about Greg, but also get to uh, hear some of his quotable quotes. And uh, yeah, there's just some funny times. Uh, but what were some of the main uh, takeaways for you from that interview with Greg, Eli? Well, it reminded me what a character he is. I've, I've known Greg a long time and, and always appreciated uh, having him in the room. He, he can find humor in just about everything. And I, I really chuckled when I heard you remind him that the interview was being recorded. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he is uh, he's definitely an interesting guy and, and, um, and, and always fun to talk to and listen to. And you know uh, where he stands. Yeah, you know ahead. where he stands, right? I mean, I, th I think he brings that up. And, and maybe that yeah. was the follow-up discussion I had with him was that the ability to disagree cordially is yeah. something that he he values. And it sounds like that's why he's been willing to yeah, – he's always willing to share his opinion, but he's also, I think, attempts to do that with respect to other people's opinions. And that's a, Yeah, absolutely. A he's he's very factor. good about that. So I was really struck, you know, I didn't know the numbers. I, I've talked earlier about the important role the counties play in supporting Minnesota's uh, communities. And I, I was impressed. I think he mentioned his estimate was that Carleton County's timber revenues that over and above costs are enough to fund, he thought, maybe one and a half school teachers every year. When he, he said they ran some numbers at the state level, you know, across those 15 county land departments and found that he, he thought the number was about 30 school teachers were supported through revenue generated from county forest land. And I, I just find that impressive. You know, county, well, public lands provide so many benefits and values to us as individuals through recreation opportunities, through scenery and, and beauty and uh, wildlife habitat and, and all of these different things. And in addition to all of that, uh, being able to fund a, a pretty sizable share of uh, local education systems, mm -hmm. I, I think is really important. And I thought it was interesting hearing Greg talk too about how the profession has changed and the, the added complexity that goes into it now. You know, he said a few times, you know, back in the day, we'd paint four lines and tell them to cut everything in between. And we just don't do that anymore. It's, uh, there's a much deeper understanding and management is much more grounded in, in, in the deeper knowledge of plant communities and the influence of forest certification, which, as he said, provides pretty specific guidance on how land should be managed. Minnesota's voluntary best management uh, or voluntary forest management guidelines are another important thing that he talked about. And you could really hear through the course of the interview, you know, how his experience has changed in forestry from the time that he started to and now. And that's demonstrated by his uh, his willingness to learn. He mentioned that some of his biggest successes are, are the people that he's brought on board. And his, I think he does a great job of demonstrating that as we go out throughout our careers, and this kind of reflects back to Jim's, Jim, something Jim said is that we learn something at one point. And if we're not willing to let that learning evolve, then we're just going to be stuck in that old data, in those old data, basically. So I really, li I really enjoyed hearing Greg's talk about how important learning from his new staff members has been to helping his thinking evolve and helping Carleton County Forestry evolve. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was also impressed with how involved Greg has been as a leader. He really has, you know, he talked about on the one hand, maintaining how, how important it is to him to be able to maintain some time in the woods, but it's kind of hard to fathom how he finds that time when you think about all the things he's done not just on the administrative side of his position, but also 
you know, volunteering essentially. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's maybe part of his job, but it's not certainly not something that he's obligated to do to get involved with the Minnesota Forest Resources Partnership, the Minnesota Association of County Land Commissioners and the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all really important bodies that, that come together to influence and inform uh, regulations and, and legislation and, and, and practices at the local level. I think things really go both ways there. I've, I've worked with all of those organizations and they, they really are important to the community. And in order for them to work, people need to step up and put that time in, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's, you know, life, life is run by the people who show up, they say, you know, and, and that's really true uh, in Minnesota's forestry community. And, those organizations play an important role. And of course, they're only as good as the people who, who show up and, and the time and effort that those people put in. And I knew Greg had done some of those things. I, I think I had forgotten how active he really has been. And uh, in addition to that, he has served on my organization's uh, educational advisory committee for years. And he's always just got really good input for us as we think about educational needs and how best to meet those. So really a dedicated public servant and an impressive, um, impressive guy. So I, I, I was happy to hear about all of that. Yeah, it seemed like he recognized kind of, if not early on in his career, at some point in his career that it was important to have a voice at the table. So I wrote down a few. He has, like I said earlier, he has some quotable quotes and I wrote down a few of those. And I think one that speaks to this is he says, whilst there are things you can do in the woods, it's amazing how much of what you do is governed by St. Paul. And I think you talk about localizing some of these policies. And I think he's recognized that he recognized that and said, I have the opportunity to be a voice for the people that have a better understanding of the on the ground realities of these policies that are going to come the way of the forester at some point. And if he, he recognized that if he's not there as part of the discussion, that uh, he basically just has to try and do what the people um, that are removed from the, some of the on-the-ground on realities are telling them to do. So I, I appreciate that he's been willing to be at so many tables and to uh, be a voice for the hopefully the average uh, on-the-ground forester. And some people, like you say, yeah, it's great if people can, can use their voice and have that opportunity um, to be there, but not everybody gets that opportunity. So yeah, I'm thankful for the people that are willing to, to speak up for us on the ground. Uh, yeah. The other other two quotable quotes that I wrote down is uh, Forrester's joy is to plant a tree. He'll never turn into something. Uh, I think that speaks about the long-term perspective we kind of have to have. And of course we get to see it grow and develop in the, in the short term, but I think he's, he's coming from a, a product's perspective and yeah, that's a, an ends is the end product that will might never see that tree turn into something, but he speaks about the long-term vision and then the funny quote every day here is like a vacation while I'm at work. Yeah. (laughs) That was, uh, yeah. He mentions we don't get paid all that much, but if, if we get to run a skid steer and then uh, go plant some trees and then do this and that, like every, every day is a little bit different. And I know that's something I enjoy about my position here at the forestry center. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good good interview. Greg's a, a, a terrific guy, and I, I'm glad he took the time to, to talk with you. Yeah. Any wrap-up thoughts, Eli? No, I don't think so. I enjoyed listening to Greg. I hope our listeners have as well. Yeah, right on. Well, I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. 
Sounds good. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you, Eli. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.